This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Thanks for joining us for Episode 28 of the Recorded Future podcast. Our guest today is Bob Gourley. He's the author of the book, The Cyber Threat, Know the Threat to Beat the Threat. Earlier in his career, Bob spent 20 years as a U.S. Navy intelligence officer. One of his last assignments with the military was as director of intelligence for the first Department of Defense Cyber Defense Organization. He's currently a partner at Cognitio Group, where he leads research and analysis activities, due diligence assessments, and strategic cybersecurity reviews for clients. Bob sat down with us at Recorded Future's 2017 R Fun Conference at the Museum in Washington, D.C. for a wide-ranging conversation discussing what it was like to define emerging cybersecurity missions for the Department of Defense, the importance of looking back to history as a guide, and the need for threat intelligence and basic cyber hygiene. Stay with us. I was a Navy intelligence officer for 20 years, and um, so tours in Europe and Asia, and a lot of all-sourced intelligence fusion was my background. The last several years of my career was uh, standing up the first uh, Department of Defense organization to do cyber operations at a joint level. It's the Joint Task Force for Computer Network Defense. This is the first organization that had direct command of defense, which you know, led to today's Cybercom. When you're standing up the first one of those, what are what's the what's the parameters under which you're doing that? What is the mission that you're trying to accomplish? Well, um, our boss was a two-star general who uh, was told essentially fix this problem and was given some other guidance directly from the Secretary of Defense, which is if there's an incident anywhere in DoD, I want to know about it. Um, and he was to come up with a mission that helps defend 3.6 million computers and over 10,000 networks. So how did he do that? He pulled together a small headquarters element. He had a J3 for operations. He had a J2 for intelligence. That was me. He had a, a several other key staff to work uh, at a headquarters level. My job was to pull together all of the threat information and to create an ability to understand what the adversaries are doing and figure out who's attacking the nets and then inform the J3 and others on how to stop it. The two-star general then, you know how Department of Defense organizes, he had components in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines to get stuff done, and DISA also had components that worked for him. And what year are we talking about? This was, uh, we started working December 1998, and then we became fully operational uh, April of 99. So let's put that into perspective. What are we talking about in terms of the the evolution of, of connected computers and the Internet and the systems that you're dealing with? Right. So um, in the 80s, there was the Morris worm, which had taken down a lot of infrastructure and caused the creation of things called the certs. And that was kind of the state of the art when we came around. There were certs everywhere that was communicating and coordinating on computer science and computer incidents. And then there were some major intrusion sets going on. The... Um, there was a um, Solar Sunrise was a famous one that just really had the Department of Defense puzzled. People are looping through several computers. We thought it might be the Iraqis, hmm. and we couldn't investigate it and, and stop it fast enough. Turned out it was uh, two kids in California being mentored by an Israeli hacker, <laughs> uh, but we couldn't figure all that out. Um, also, there was a major um, activity codenamed Moonlight Maze, which uh, was 
being investigated by the FBI and the law enforcement agencies in the Department of Defense where someone was going in and penetrating Department of Defense computers and Department of Energy computers and computers in academia and we needed to make progress on that and we were born into that environment. So Moonlight Maze can be thought of as the first advanced persistent threat and it was our job to figure out who it was. And our team, uh, the intelligence team, pulled together intelligence from CIA, NSA, DIA, the imagery guys, um, human people, and open source intelligence and counterintelligence, and were able to come up with a theory that proved to be correct, which is it was the Russian Academy of Sciences backed by the Russian intelligence services who were trying to acquire uh, sensitive information f uh, to benefit their programs. How did you all approach a, a problem that big, a, a problem as large as this, the scale of, of having to secure the entire DOD? How do you break that down? Well, um, you have to do it in a way that scales, and so there's a lot of problems which still exist today when it comes to data. Uh, we had to work collaboratively to figure out what the right plan is, but then when you execute the plan, we did it with absolute command and authority. So the collaborative part is all right, how do we decide what information needs to be sent up to the center? Because you can't send all the information to the center. So you, you want certain alerts. And so negotiating what that should look like was key. And then in the stand-up, um, we kept tuning that information flow. The command part was we had you know, guidance from the Secretary of Defense that we had direct command authority to order things in the networks. And sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. But we were the first organization that was able to do that and make some progress. Now, um, back in those days, there was a lot of forgiveness for our mistakes because we were the first. Um, these guys today have it much, much harder. Everybody expects them to defend perfectly, and it's tough. Also, another difference today is the adversaries just kept growing and growing and growing, and our dependency on IT kept growing. So I have a lot of empathy for the folks doing this job today. Did you have an ability, despite the scale, did you have an ability to be nimble? So that's an interesting topic. Now, the kind, first let me tell you the kind of people that were on this JTF. Some of them, you know, I was an operational intelligence guy. Um, we had other people who were very operational, um, you know, Army infantry, Army IT, several Navy guys, including F-14 pilots, uh, F-14 flight officers. These guys think fast, and, um, and they uh, were just critical to our ability to execute. We would have technical people who would uh, help explain to these people you know, what was going on. They would ask the hard questions, and they would know how to execute and deliver orders. Our boss, this two-star general, was an Air Force fighter pilot, another guy that thinks fast. Right. So these are folks who come up uh, having to make uh, critical decisions quickly, decisively. Right. And, uh, you know, General Campbell did that. Uh, he was the two-star general. Um, he led us in our formation and then through the operations and then uh, went on to become a three-star where he was uh, head of all the military support um, uh, at CIA and is still very active in the cyber community today. So contrast that with the, the, the things that you were doing then with where you see things today. How have things changed and evolved? They've changed in a lot of ways, but some things are incredibly consistent, unfortunately. As we dug into this, some of the consistent things are when an adversary wants something, I mean, we all see this, they just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. Um, yesterday we were in the spy museum where I saw some uh, great exhibits. One was a Sun Tzu's exhibit, and it's Sun Tzu who told us we really have to know the adversary and essentially saying you have to know them because they're going to keep coming. Mm -hmm. And then another just right next to it is an exhibit talking about the um, Hannibal's fav famous um, 
invasion of Rome where he crossed the Alps. And he did that by laying out a great spy network and then persistently not giving up when people told him to stop. His famous uh, message back was, we'll find a way or make a way. It's that hacker mentality. And that's the same thing we saw at JTFC&D. These hackers kept coming and coming and would never stop. And fast forward to today, it's the same exact thing happening now where the adversaries are just not giving up. And I think that's the most important lesson we have from the 90s, but it's also the important lesson from Sun Tzu and from uh, the uh, crossing of the Pyrenees by Hannibal. So the, the, uh, the environment may have changed. We may be in a virtual environment today, but those rules, those um, bits of, of wisdom, I guess, still apply. Yes, because generally the, the hackers that get through are working as a team. They're organizations. They're resourced, especially the really significant attacks. Maybe they're a criminal syndicate or a, a country, and they're not going to quit. They keep coming and keep coming. You've written a book uh, called The Cyber Threat. I want to I dig into that book a little bit. First of all, what prompted you to write the book? Well, part of it was these uh, lessons from JTFC&D when we were starting to realize that it is important to know who's attacking and what their capabilities are. Sometimes it's important to help you uh, figure out uh, what your defenses should be. So there's a very strategic level of intelligence. What are the capabilities of adversaries? Sometimes it's important operationally if you can categorize who these attacks are coming from. Maybe you you can inform your defense and defend a little bit differently. And then uh, tactically, there's information that's important too. I mean, you know, the, the rapid changing of firewall rules is a simple example. So um, by writing all this out and saying there's ways to enhance your cyber threat intelligence program by operational um, and tactical and strategic intelligence, um, we are able to give a framework for how to improve intelligence. We also went back in history. I mentioned a couple of these already, the you know Hannibal crossing the Alps. The, uh, but really, the real first foray into cyber intelligence is in, during this U.S. Civil War. Hmm. Uh, both sides, of course, had telegraph and used that to pass uh, command and control information. Both sides soon learned that you could attack the other guy's telegraph lines. Uh, there's a very famous, another exhibit over in the Spy Museum was um, a raid by a Union spy, um, James Andrews, who stole a train, uh, a Confederate train, and then destroyed train tracks and bridges and telegraph lines. And that was a first major uh, cyber attack. And since then, I mean, in the Civil War, both sides soon learned that you could actually listen to the other guys, so maybe you don't want to destroy all the telegraph lines. Mm -hmm. They're doing espionage. And then they also, there's documents evidence of both sides passing false orders on the other guy's telegraph to get them to move forces in the field. So this is the early stages of cyber war. On all the wars since then, there's been cyber components. And now in this digital age, it's ubiquitous, unfortunately. Take us through uh, some of the other uh, lessons that you uh, put out there in the book. Well, a lot of the lessons are the same thing that you're seeing today as you try to defend an enterprise, which is you really need to constantly prepare yourself and raise your defenses all the time. Uh, keep things patched. It's And you've heard this a hundred times. I know your listeners have too. I hope you're not boring them with this, but <laughs> it's like eating your vegetables. You've got to stay patched and stay on it. And you have to make sure that you're agile in your defenses. It's just the most critical thing. And it's amazing how many of these attacks start with somebody clicking on a link in a phishing campaign or uh, clicking on a link in a social media campaign and that just gives the bad guys a foothold. It's just surprising how 85 to 90 percent of the attacks we see are coming in through those simple ways. Do you think we have a problem with incentives? I was speaking to someone recently and, and they made the point that uh, 
they are not given uh, the, the, the the average worker in a company is not given a bonus based on adhering to security rules they're given a bonus based on getting their job done and when these security rules are a speed bump for them getting their job done, we have a little bit of a tension there. Right. So we have several clients in the finance sector, and there it's a little bit different because finance is all about trust. So there they are incentivized to protect that data, and I think there's a lot of strong, strong security measures in, you know, throughout the finance sector. In other places, we have clients who are, no kidding, creating cures for cancer, and it's so exciting to read about what they're doing and to talk to these people. Their job is not to do cybersecurity. Their job is to do something that you and I want them to do, which is find cures to a lot of hard cancers. Unfortunately, sometimes that means they don't pay enough attention to security. Uh, they get infected by malware, it shuts down a lab, and then they wake up to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have so many clients whose job is essentially innovation. Innovate fast and faster, and don't let security slow you down. So this is a tough challenge. And I, there's always ways to uh, get just the right amount of security to not impede that innovation. And that's kind of the sweet spot we think businesses should try for. This is the Recorded Future podcast. We want to talk about threat intelligence. What's your perspective on the role of threat intelligence in a company's spectrum of defensive uh, strategies? Well, I think it's important in three ways. If you you bend it is uh, strategic intelligence, operational intelligence, and tactical intelligence. Recorded Future and um, its many data sources is helpful in strategic intelligence because you can now brief executives, here's what's going on broadly using a very simple, easy to understand graphics that Recorded Future can present. Uh, Some of these are nice dashboards you can actually put an executive in front of and let them do some of the clicking. So that's very strategic and help them think through major resource decisions like um, what kind of funding do I need to put on security and how do I do that while still remaining innovative. At an operational level, we see a recorded future helping a lot of people make the tactical decisions. You uh, read a vulnerability report, do I need to take any action on it or not? Maybe nobody's talking about it. Maybe I don't have any data that is uh, vulnerable um, on systems that uh, have that vulnerability. Uh, recorded future helps you through at that operational threat level. Tactically is where it really pays off, which is you have defenders in the fight right now who are trying to protect your most sensitive data, and they need to know who's coming for it and what vulnerabilities they're using and uh, what is the risk of that vulnerability and the exploit they've built for it of penetrating you. So if you look at, that's my lens of looking at recorded futures, mm. um, strategic, operational, and tactical intelligence. Looking forward, as, as uh, you look towards the horizon with uh, the experience that you have, where do you think we need to go? What's the, what are the next logical steps for us? Well, um, there's basically two kinds of people in the security community that have been doing this for a while. One is incredibly gloomy, and it's like everything's going to fall down around us, and the Internet of Things is going to steal all my data. And the other kind is the optimist who says, man, we just got to keep innovating. This stuff is great. It's going to change our world. It is going to cure cancer. It's going to extend uh, life. It's going to uh, make us all wealthier and more leisure time, and we can all study poetry. And I'm, I tend towards that more optimistic side. I love all this stuff. Let's keep moving and moving faster. Let's invest more in artificial intelligence. Let's figure out the magic of the blockchain that makes Bitcoin work and see how that can, uh, that journaling can help with security. Let's figure out how to do encryption in at data at rest and in motion. And let's figure out how to put thousands of chips in everybody's home in ways that um, improve their lives, but keep the bad guys out. Now, 
the problem with both ends of that spectrum is the guy who says it's all gloom and doom, it's not all gloom and doom. Um, the guy who says it's all perfect, bring it all on, you know, there's going to be issues and risks that we have to deal with and mitigate. And that's where we have to find balance. And that's what's going to keep all of us in this field busy. It seems to me like there are some things that lag, that have hard time keeping up with the velocity of change with cybersecurity. When I think of legislation, and our legislators in particular, here in the United States, if you, you look at our Congress, the age of everyone, the age of the Supreme Court, these are not folks who are digital natives. How do we provide the protections that we need when our legal framework and the people who are we, we entrust with our legal framework might not be up on the technology? Uh, this is not uh, reflexive to them. Yeah, so I want to mention two things that has come up in our research and just observations. One is, unfortunately, this is a real problem. We have noticed this thing we call cyber threat amnesia, hmm. which is it's the tendency of an organization to forget the cyber threat as soon as you have mitigated the past, the previous attack. As an example of this, 1977, there's a report done by RAND called the WARE Report, which said in the growing age of computer connectivity, um, there's an increased threat of attacks. And this caused a lot of change. It created the Information Assurance Director at NSA, for example. Um, it was widely seen as a wake-up call. Um, unfortunately, the wake-up call didn't stick. By the time um, uh, Morris hit, people had forgotten about that. By the time the Hannibal hackers hit, people had forgotten about the Morris worm uh, lessons. On and on and on. And the um, by the time I was involved in it, Solar Sunrise was there, and the deputy director of Department of Defense at Solar Sunrise was a wake-up call for the Department of Defense. The very next year, it was eligible receiver, and the Secretary of Defense said eligible receiver was a wake-up call for the Department of Defense. <laughs> the very next year, it was Moonlight Maze. Fast forward another 10 years, it's Buckshot Yankee in 2009, which the director of national intelligence said was a wake-up call for the Department of Defense. And, you know, we go on and on and on. The very next year, uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Lynn uh, writes an article in Forbes saying that Department of Defense has had its wake-up call in cybersecurity. Uh, and the, in 2011, uh, Bob Butler says that WikiLeaks has been a wake-up call for the Department of Defense in cybersecurity. So on and on and on, we get these wake-up calls, and we forget about it. It's the cyber threat amnesia. Hmm. So that's one thing I want to mention. Yeah. Another is uh, we go in and do an assessment of an organization. It could be a very big enterprise. Um, and we will assess hundreds of factors to help them build an action plan to get better. But one factor dominates all others, and that is, does the CEO get it? Does the CEO care? If the CEO doesn't care, all's lost. Forget it. You need to make that guy care, help him understand why it's important, or else nothing else matters. If the CEO gets it, he still may have a lot of hard work to do, but you know that one factor is over all of them, and that's... Um, a little bit of a cause for worry, but maybe some optimism too, because more CEOs are getting it. I wonder if we're heading towards that with cybersecurity, where it's just part of everyone's day-to-day, uh, -day, just like, you know, you wash your hands, you, you take care of your personal hygiene, your cybersecurity protection and hygiene is just going to be a part of what we all grow up knowing that it's something we have to take care of. I hope so. We can dream, and that's, that would be my dream and vision. <laughs> I'd love for everybody to understand the importance of this technology and the, you know, cyberspace that we've created, because cyberspace is really just our interconnected computers, and everybody really needs to understand how these interconnected computers computers work. All right. Bob Gorley, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Our thanks to Bob Gorley for joining us. The title of his book is The Cyber Threat. Know the threat to beat the threat. And don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. 
Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.